scripture reading this morning comes from Song, and we'll be doing two parts, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, and 8, 6 through 7. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. The reading of God's words. This morning we continue a three-part series on rare relationships. Uh, Week one, we looked at the power of mentoring relationships. The power that mentors have to encourage us in our spiritual growth and maturity, and the role that we might play in mentoring or encouraging somebody else in the faith. Uh, We encourage you to consider, if you feel like you would need or benefit from a mentor, to reach out to us. Uh, There are brochures at the Connect Center. Uh, You can fill that out, let us know, and we will follow up. And if you're interested or open to mentoring somebody else, we invited uh, you to share that with us. And we've had several people say, yeah, if the need arose and it were a fit, I would be happy to play that kind of role. That was week one. Week two, uh, Pastor Greg talked about uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, those ways that we need to experience healing in our relationships with other people when there's brokenness. If God's design is for us to have significant relationships, we also know that we experience brokenness many times in those relationships, and those relationships need mending. We need to forgive and be forgiven. We need to experience reconciliation, both with God and with others. Today, we look at the third message in the series, and the foundational truth we will explore today is this that everyone can gain a right understanding of romantic relationships by learning what the Bible has to say about romantic love as a reflection of God's love. Let me say that again. Everyone can gain a right understanding of romantic relationships by learning what the Bible has to say about romantic love as a reflection of God's love. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about love, sex, and intimacy But sadly, for many people, the words romance and the Bible conjure up a list of religious thou shalt not. But God never intended us to view love in a negative way. He created us in love and for love. And for that reason, the Bible has a great deal to say about romantic love. In fact, it often uses it as a picture, uses a picture of human love to help us understand God's love for us. So here's a key example, considering what we heard in the whole of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a beautiful love poem written by Solomon that abounds in colorful metaphors and Eastern imagery. When considered literally, it depicts the wooing and wedding of a shepherdess by King Solomon. 
and the joys and thrills and heartaches and surprises of wedded love. Throughout the ages, scholars have also looked at the book through an allegorical lens. When considered in this way, it pictures Israel as God's betrothed bride in Hosea 2, that God woos us and reaches out in relationship with us. Many have also seen it as a picture of the church as the bride of Christ and how God woos us, his followers, in his love. As human life finds its highest fulfillment in love between a man and a woman, so spiritual love finds its highest fulfillment in the love of God for his people and Christ for his church. The Hebrew title Shir Hashirim comes from chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs. And the superlative form declares it to be Solomon's most exquisite song. The Latin title Canticum Canticorum also means the best song. In other words, this is Solomon saying, this is the best I have to offer. Like a beautiful song that our choir sings when they're at their finest. It's Solomon's best attempt to capture what love, passionate, romantic love, can look like. But we need to look at it in its wider context in Scripture and, and, and through the whole of history. And here I'm going to reach to Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, for help. Many of you know that Keller passed away this last week at 72. And I could say in reflection upon his impact on my life, next to C.S. Lewis, he's probably the most impactful Christian writer in my own journey and ministry. Keller, in The Meaning of Marriage, says that the Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with the wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage, you see, is God's idea. That's why the Presbyterian Service of Marriage says that marriage is instituted by God, regulated by his commandments, and blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ. So what God initiates and what he thinks up, we should learn about. If God invented marriage, then those who enter into it and those who reflect on its impact should make every effort to submit and understand his purposes for marriage. Because in that, we can grow and mature in our love relationship with him and in our relationship with others. The central themes here include the fact that God demonstrates his grace to us through the joys of romantic love and that he enables husbands and wives to share that love. That human love can also serve, though, as a picture of his divine love for us. So here's how it impacts or speaks to each one of us. Yes, the book is an expression of pure marital love as ordained by God in creation. And its interpretation can be threefold. It's first, a vivid unfolding of Solomon's love for a Shulamite girl, a woman who he married. It's about the passion and connection of marriage. But it is also a figurative revelation of God's love for his covenant people, Israel, the wife of the Lord. And it can be seen as an allegory of Christ's love for his heavenly bride, the church. And who does that include? All of us. So here's where we can unpack this and how. Among those who have valued the book most highly in both Jewish and Christian circles, there's been a tendency to give the book an allegorical interpretation. 
That is to say that behind what seems to be the plain surface meaning of the book, the celebration of human romantic love, there is also a deeper spiritual meaning. In the Jewish tradition, the bridegroom or the bride in the book who addresses each other is seen as a reflection of God and Israel. And again and again in places like Hosea 2 and others, God is seen as ultimately the the husband reaching out to his bride, the church. In Christian tradition, the book becomes the story of Christ and the church. And we see again and again in the New Testament that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride of Christ. Someone, actually origin of Alexandria, found even a wider allegorical interpretation saying there's really four characters in the book. There's the bridegroom who is Christ, the bride who is the church, the friends of the bridegroom who are either the prophets or the patriarchs of old, and the friends of the bride who stand for the souls of believers. I wonder if Origen might have taken it a little too far. It's true that marriage relationship is used elsewhere in the Old Testament as one of the ways to describe relationship between God and his people Israel. A glance again at Hosea chapter 2 is enough to show this. But to treat such language found here in the Song of Songs as an allegory of God and Israel or of Christ and the church alone is to rob it of its poetry and its passion. It is about passion and sexual desire God has given to be explored in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. You see, according to Scripture in the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect his way of loving one another sacrificially. Marriages become a place of refinement of our character. They're a place to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children. And they accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes together in a whole life union. So it needs to be said, therefore, that this Christian vision for marriage and the romance and passion within it cannot be realized by two people of the same sex. That's the unanimous view of the biblical authors and therefore the view that this message will continue to explore. Sex is to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. But the gift of marriage impacts all of us in the church, as we will see. So what do we learn about romantic love here in this passage? First, romantic love is about re-creation. See, the passage says, the winter is past, the rains are gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in the land, the fig trees form its early fruit, the blossoming of vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. You know, centrally in scripture, not just romantically speaking, the great work of God is recreation, recreating our relationship with him through the redemptive work of Jesus. I have often said that Beth's love and our marriage relationship has a way of recreating me. I might have had a difficult day where I wasn't necessarily necessarily received or affirmed by others or encouraged But when she reminds me of her love for me, 
that her love and our relationship is bigger than our problems, our passion can be rekindled. And guess what? That's God's great work in each one of our lives, not just in a marriage relationship. God wants to recreate us each and every day. I love that we sang, great is thy faithfulness today. His mercies are new every morning. He has a recreating work that he's doing in each one of our lives. I love the way Pastor Carl distinguished, you know, we receive the forgiveness of God. We've received that from what Jesus has already done. But he's also doing this sanctifying, recreating work in our lives. And that's why we confess our sins each Sunday. Recognizing that we need to come clean before him and we need him to recreate us. The passage abounds with powerful imagery. Here, God's invitation is capped by a marvelous description of the world bursting into new life at springtime, a symbol of the new life which love has to offer. Winter, the rainy season, which normally ends around mid-April, is past in the passage. Spring flowers appear in the countryside like daffodils along the roadside that we see along the side of our own highways. If we have that image, but maybe not. Okay, (laughs) you've seen it as you drove up. It's the time of the early figs being formed on branches. Compare the use, for instance, of Jesus making of the, the Jesus makes of this same picture in Mark 13, 28. Let the fig tree teach you a lesson, he says, when its branches become green and tender and it starts putting out leaves, you know that summer is near. For Jesus, it was a sign of the times and the nearness of the Son of God. For the lovers, a sign of their awakening and the ripening of love. The vineyards, too, are heavy with the scent of blossoms. This, at least, seems to be the general meaning of the difficult text in the second half of verse 13. What the writer is saying is this. Romantic love is akin to the recreation of the created world each springtime. It arises and blooms and bears the fruit of more love. This renewal of creation is reflective of the power of physical touch to bring love to tangible expression. It's literally one of the ways that God makes us new. That quality of recreation can occur, obviously, in the context of marriage. Between a man and a woman, reaffirming one another, welcoming one another, accepting one another. But doesn't it happen in wider forms, too? It might have actually been accomplished through a hug you received this morning when you walked into the lobby. Somebody that just welcomed you and wrapped you up in in a loving embrace. And in that embrace, you, you were almost recreated. I'm in this space and place where my community, the bride of Christ, receives me, cares for me, welcomes me. You see, the quality here spoken of newness of life and creation is about the power to almost reprogram us. And this is what marriage has the potential of doing. In a good marriage, a spouse reminds you that you are loved and appreciated. They encourage you. They build you up. They almost help you relearn who you are. Sometimes we can easily forget. We can be battered and bruised in the day-in, day-out struggles that we experience of life. And the power of love in the context of the marriage has the capacity to reprogram us, to help us see our self-image, 
anew and afresh, redeemed and restored through our own lover's embrace. Because of that power, though, marriage relationships can also be hard and hurtful. They can have an extremely difficult quality. The good news in that is that in all ways we can experience God's recreation. Newness of life, renewal of our marriages, but also for those who are divorced and experience the difficult and and painful nature of a, a difficult marriage, God is your spouse and longs to embrace you, welcome you, restore you, remind you that you are loved and that he wants to recreate you in his image and has done that recreating work through Jesus and continues to do it. I also think of those who are are widowed, who have experienced the loss or passing of a spouse. And I think of what C.S. Lewis once wrote, that the pain or grief now is part of the goodness and joy that you experienced then. And for many, you wouldn't want to be without that, having experienced that love. You wouldn't trade that experience in your life with your spouse for anything. It's indelibly marked who you are, and it always will. That person has that imprint upon your life, and you shared love for many years, one of life's richest gifts. And the grief now is a reality, a reflection of how good it was then and how joyful that gift was. God can recreate each one of us through the gift and through the challenges of marriage. Secondly, romantic love is about confirmation. The passage says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Romantic love and sexual activity is about confirmation. It's about sealing the deal, so to speak. In other types of love, what we find is that they all build towards or ultimately can be expressed in romantic love. Here's what I mean. The, the Greek word for storge, for affection, is one type of love. And we need love that is affectionate in nature, open, warm, towards one another. Another type of love in the Greek, as we've explored before, and which C.S. Lewis writes about in The Four Loves, is phileo. It's a brotherly, sisterly love. It's that interconnected kind of love uh, between brothers, between sisters. There's agape, which is unconditional love, unmerited favor. It is that love because, not because the person is necessarily worth loving in the sense of they've deserved it, but because we love and we choose to love and we do so in a costly, sacrificial way. So what I want to say about romantic love, which is eros in the Greek, is that without the other types of love, romantic love, eros, is empty of its full meaning. But at its best, it becomes a confirming expression of love. Like a tattoo, somebody gets to permanently remember an experience or loved one. It can serve as a confirmation of the other types of love. So in the poem, the writer of Song of Songs and and the female, the beloved of Solomon, is so beloved she's being carried away by her passions. She relishes the joy, yet she knows that love should have its own rhythms and its proper progression. Too fast, she basically says, would be soon, would soon spoil it all. 
So she advises the women of Jerusalem not to encourage love beyond its right proper pace, with the attention turned to the world then beyond them, with, the, with uh, its power and impact on others. What does that mean? She's basically saying, don't pursue the physical aspects and passionate arrows type of love too quickly or too soon. You may have experienced this in the development of a love romantic relationship where the physical aspect is something you wanted to jump into right away. It was exciting. But that came at the expense of developing other types, other aspects of love. I can say that my marriage relationship with Beth has now lasted and remains fruitful and growing after 28 years because it's not just the physical aspect and the passionate aspect. It's because I really like Beth. And it's actually because she's my best friend. And it's because I'd be willing to do anything for Beth. And because of those other types of love, the romantic, passionate part of love, then, then continue to confirm the other parts. It becomes its fulfillment, not its starting point. And sadly, in our culture, we know that many romantic relationships are just based on the physical attraction, the fulfillment of that attraction in sexual intimacy. But those relationships don't have the depth and fullness that God designed and wants for our relationships. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that this is where the church comes in because we need the various aspects of love. We need those that, that we just have affection for. I have affection for you. I look forward to seeing you on a Sunday morning. I also experience a brotherly quality through my pastor prayer group and through my guys group and other things. And I'm amazed by the sacrificial love of this congregation shown towards me and my family and having the opportunity to show that towards you. If those aspects of love aren't ultimately fulfilled through the community we're a part of, we, we start to feel uh, less than. We don't experience the fulfillment of what God desires. God desires for those in the context of marriage to experience confirmation through the physical aspect of love, surrendering to one another, giving yourself to one another. But there's also a proper pace in love. And often, people pursue too much too soon in the physical aspect. And as a result, the other aspects aren't developed. And you might have learned this, both positively or perhaps negatively in previous relationships. And if that is your experience and you have that experience, that is something to share with the younger generations. I love you. And I want you to experience the fullness of what God wants for you in the gift of marriage. But, but work on who you are right now. Work on the other aspects of relationships and other types of love. And eventually, God willing, you'll experience the Eros, passionate part of love. But don't pursue that too much or too quickly. It's almost like eating candy before dinner. So we need to nurture the various types of love and then see uh, sexual or romantic love as a confirmation of the other types of love. Confirming love might be seen in a wedding ring that you wear. Confirming love might be just seen in a, a hug that you, you give to somebody. But what confirmation looks like in romantic relationships is both the vertical aspect of relationship with God and ultimately covenanting with Him that then leads us to be able to uh, make covenant relationships with others. 
That's the meaning of, mar- of, of marriage. It's also the meaning of membership with any given congregation. We are members connected with Christ first and foremost. He is our, our spouse. He is our groom as the bride of Christ. But having that confirming quality of love and relationship with Jesus then enables us to make covenant relationships with other people. My marriage is a covenant before God, but with Beth. It is with one specific person. And it is a commitment on my part to love her and go on loving her. Romantic love is about confirmation. Romantic love is also unquenchable in a way. And it says here, many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it out. Like a thirst that cannot be satiated, romantic love has a quality of renewal about it in terms of its continued desire and consummation. You've heard it in the country song. I like it, I love it, I want more of it. Simple words. But the poetry here gives us a quality of how how unquenchable good love is, romantic love. And what that means is that we experience consummation of it, but in its fulfillment, we want to go on experiencing it, rightly so. It leaves us with a, with a renewed hunger and, and passion to be intimate and to be connected in a sexual relationship with our spouse. But stepping back from that for a moment, I want to say this, that we first and foremost must hunger and thirst for God. He is the one who can ultimately quench your spiritual thirst and satisfy your hunger. He is the one that can give you the affirmation and identity and belonging you seek for. And then when you find that in God and you have that spiritual thirst quenched, then you're ready to to live out a loving relationship with your spouse and to be in other kinds of love relationships with others. You see, when we hunger and thirst for God, when we're growing spiritually, I can tell you that that is one of the most attractive things. Spiritual growth is incredibly attractive in more ways than one. But when we find our our meaning and our identity in relationship with God and we're growing in, in relationship with him, then we're becoming the right person for somebody else, for our spouse in the context of marriage and for others in the context of other friendships and in ways that we might share other types of love. Continuing to grow spiritually will lead us into quality and depth of relationships. Fourth and finally, romantic love is about giving before it is about getting. Romantic relationships are about pleasing your spouse, giving yourself generously and passionately, putting the other person's needs before your own rather than receiving, then receiving in return. But if we look first and foremost in romantic relationships and really any kind of relationship about what we can get out of it, we're going to miss out. If we're just selfishly entering a relationship looking for how I can benefit whether it's a marriage or in other types of relationships. We're missing on the mark on God's call to love our neighbor as ourselves and to put other people before ourselves. In a marriage relationship, you are not your own. You are hers. You are his. Then we're free to pursue the delights of love that that the image of love comes to for every believer where, where we experience fulfillment and meaning. Each one of us can give 
out of our love and relationship with God and how he has given to us, and then we receive. But as Josh McDowell says in The Secret of Loving, you essentially are the secret. And he raises the question of how do you become the right person in a love relationship with someone else? Sex is part of that relationship, but it's not its whole, and it's not enough. Often what we need to experience first and foremost is just affection and tenderness. Ann Landers actually received an incredible response when she asked, would you prefer snuggling instead of sex? And more than 64,000 out of 90,000 people affirmed a warm hug or gentle touch is more important than intercourse. We need affection and tenderness and we can give that to one another in relationships. Yes, sensually in the context of marriage. But a, but a gentle touch on someone's shoulder or a, just a side hug of, of welcome and embrace can speak volumes too. Church, as a bride of Christ, we have lots of opportunities to give love. Romantically, yes, in the context of our marriages, but in other ways as well. When we do so, we experience a covenant renewal, a reconnection as the people of God, where we're affirming and encouraging one another because God and Christ has affirmed and encouraged us. Most of us often can search for the right person in relationship, for romantic relationships as well as friendships. But the key in Scripture is to be the right person for someone else. To come alongside them in times of grief and sorrow and loss and encourage them. To be growing and maturing in our marriage relationships so that God in Christ working in my life enables God to give the best possible person in marriage to Beth. You see, your personal relationship with God directly affects your capacity to discover and sustain a fulfilled love, marriage, or sexual and sexual relationship. True love can then postpone the sexual gratification parts of it and concentrate on loving a complete person. God wants us to mature in love. But that love relationship, those love relationships, has to be about willingness to sacrifice. And that can only happen when you truly care about another person's well-being. But just think, friends, of what God in Christ has modeled for us. Jesus is a true and living example of love. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Tim Keller speaks of this once more, where he says, if God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. We are to do for our spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. This is the secret, that the gospel of Jesus and marriage and romantic relationships explain one another. That is why God invented marriage. He already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. That's the reason, then, why marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful. It's because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. You are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared hope. 
This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. And in marriage, in romantic relationships that are rare, they approximate or they speak or they affirm affirm that kind of love. So in closing and thinking about the implications for each one of us, if you're single, seek Christ. Seek him passionately. Hunger and thirst for him. He is the one that can meet your deepest needs for identity and belonging. If you're married, continue to grow and mature in Christ-like love so that God through Christ can offer through you the best possible person for your spouse. If you're divorced or widowed, you have redemptive experience to offer the church and pray for the marriages in our church. Marriage is hard, and we need all the help you can get. That help could be offering to babysit for a couple that is in desperate need of a date night. It could be just offering a word of encouragement. We have about five couples that just experienced their 60th wedding anniversary in our church. And those are the ones that I've been going to and asking, what's the secret sauce? Because I'm 28 years in, and I want to have a long and fulfilling marriage that witnesses to God's faithfulness and covenant love as well. And I'm deeply thankful for the many of you that have reflected that type of depth of love and commitment. So wherever we are, whatever age and stage in our journey through life, my prayer is that romantic relationships and encouraging and affirming them and even supporting them are essential to who we are as a church. Let's worship him one more time this this morning. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Jesus, Jesus, the name above every other name, Jesus, the only one who could ever save, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, we live for you. There is no one like you There is none beside you Open up my 